Welcome to the most important edition yet of the Wednesday interview from the Sustainable Futures Report. I'm Anthony Day. Russia is in the news, and Russia is also a major player in the global commitment to achieve net zero. Can Russia truly be sustainable? How do we make sense of all this? I spoke to an expert. I spoke to Louis Cox Brousseau of Sibyline. My guest today is Louis Cox Brousseau, who works at Sibyline, a strategic advisory firm with hubs in London, Singapore and New York and correspondents across the world. Louis joined Sibyline's Europe Eurasia desk in January 2021, following a six-year stint working in the European institutions and Central European Think Bank Network. As an expert in European security and defence, Russia and the Eastern Partnership and Central Europe, he provides expertise on security and defence policy, migration, foreign direct investment and climate security. He's previously worked as a policy advisor on the European Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee, acting as special advisor on the Security and Defence and Human Rights subcommittees. His areas of interest in Parliament included European security and defence, migration policy, climate change, cybersecurity, Russia and the Eastern Partnership and foreign direct investment in the EU. Upon leaving Brussels, Louis worked for several years as a research fellow and independent consultant in the Visegrad region, working with Czech, Polish, Slovak and Hungarian governments and regional NGOs on policy projects covering EU-Ukraine relations, Visegrad military cohesion and conflict in Eastern Ukraine. He holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Cambridge and two master's degrees from Cambridge and King's College London, focusing on conflict simulation, negotiation and conflict resolution and international relations theory. He speaks English and French fluently and is conversational in Russian and Czech. Louis, welcome to the Sustainable Futures Report. Hi, Anthony. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, the Sustainable Futures Report is about sustainability, and I want to talk about Russia because it's a major producer of fossil fuels, and if we are to achieve net zero, we're going to have to eliminate fossil fuels. Of course, at this moment, 100 million people across Europe and many others across the world are anxiously watching developments on the Russia-Ukraine border. The situation has been described as potentially the most dangerous since 1945. And you could say it's irresponsible to talk about anything else. Well, the situation on Ukraine's Russian border is undoubtedly a clear and present danger. The climate crisis is a clear but remote danger, arguably much more serious even than the present situation. But it's remote, and understandably people give it far less attention than it really deserves. But can we separate the geopolitical situation from the climate crisis? Let's put things into context and start by looking at the present tensions. Louis, they seem to have taken most people by surprise, but has all this been building up for a while? Thanks, Anthony. Well, that's a very good question to start things off. Um, I think, as you say, it is very important to put things in, into context here. I mean, firstly, there is definitely a connection between what's happening now and kind of uh, Europe's longer term response to the climate crisis. But you're absolutely right. Things have been building up for a while. Um, where, whereas we may only recently have seen kind of you know mass media attention given to the, to the Russia-Ukraine crisis given in the West, 
Um, it's important to note that Ukraine has been in a kind of permanent state of low-level conflict since 2014, when the Russian Federation annexed Crimea. Um, this is definitely something which has, in some respects, flown beneath the radar, but obviously for Ukrainians, it's become a part of their daily lives. Uh, and certainly what we've seen in the last few weeks has marked, as some have rightly said, the most serious escalation in military deployments and tensions since the Second World War. Now, there is clearly an energy dimension to this whole dispute. And one of the major things, of course, is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, a major pipeline which will which will deliver gas from Russia under the Baltic to Germany. And that will add to the gas which Russia is already supplying to Germany and the rest of Europe. So how is that going to play out? Again, a really interesting question. Um, there are kind of two dimensions uh, to this you know, question of, of Nord Stream 2 pipeline and, uh, and the bigger kind of question of how Russian gas and energy supplies to Europe will play out in the coming decades. Um, you're absolutely right. Uh, Germany in particular is very reliant on um, Russian gas, um, but it's actually one of the more reliant countries in the EU. And it would be wrong to say that all European countries are equally reliant. So when we're talking about Nord Stream 2, we're also talking at the same time about this question of um, divergence in the European energy market and where it, which countries tend to be most, you know, most reliant on Russia and indeed which countries tend to be most reliant on gas. I mean, let's not forget that Europe isn't yet completely homogenous in terms of, of the progress that it's made in terms of decarbonisation, in terms of diversifying toward more uh, sustainable sources of uh, uh, energy in, in the kind of longer term. Nord Stream 2 is complete, but it's not operational. And in fact, President Biden has said that if Russia does actually invade Ukraine, it will never be operational. Could be argued that he's got an axe to grind there because the United States produces a lot of gas and I think they'd be delighted to export it to the UK and to Europe. Of course, that would need quite a lot of infrastructure investment because the ships aren't available yet, but uh, there is an angle there. And if it went that far and Nord Stream 2 never opened, that would presumably be a thorn in Russia's side almost indefinitely. It certainly would be a, a big issue for Russia. Um, it would certainly put President Putin's plans to achieve net zero by 2060 into question, given that the uh, very limited, it has to be said, plans presented by the Russian Federation for decarbonisation um, lack a kind of clear and uh, um, uh, well laid out roadmap toward that goal firstly. But what we do know is they do plan to try to, to increase the competitiveness of uh, Russian hydrocarbons and to, and to increase their reliance on uh, energy export. So if Nord Stream 2 were to be shut off completely indefinitely, that would have a very large impact on Russia in the long term. Um, it is worth noting that in the short term, this is probably something the Kremlin believes it can sustain. I mean, the Russian you know, central bank has quite a, a significant uh, reserve, which it believes it would be able to use to, to survive, uh, as it were, uh, European sanctions up to and including a full closure of uh, Nord Stream 2. In the longer term, this is something which would be very, very difficult for Russia to sustain. And that's one, that's one reason why, why some analysts of the current situation have some very, very, very tentative hope that we're only likely to see this develop as a short-term kind of situation. And in the long-term, Russia will have to, 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 to maintain a more positive attitude toward Europe in order to kind of retain that connection in terms of the energy market. If they can actually persuade the powers to be 
uh, that the pipeline can be opened, then that means they can divert some of the gas which they currently send through Ukraine. That would have an effect on Ukraine because it's currently charging transit fees. How serious would that be? Uh, potentially quite serious. Um, the Ukrainian energy company Naftagaz uh, stated in 2019 that if Nord Stream 2 were to be opened fully, uh, Ukraine would lose approximately three billion US dollars per year in natural gas transit fees. Um, what it would also do in the kind of midterm is decrease Ukraine's influence in Europe as an energy supplier um, and potentially therefore leave Ukraine more vulnerable to Russian interference um, at, at, at the military level. So in the short term, potentially quite severe indeed. Going back to what you were saying about Russia having a 2060 target for net zero, is net zero really in their interests because of this vast store of fossil fuels that they've got, which I believe accounts for a significant proportion of their foreign earnings? No, it absolutely does. Um, it, it's a vital pillar to the economy. And I think that there, there is a degree of uh, brinksmanship or gamesmanship, if you like, uh, going on in the Kremlin currently. Um, what has been seen from the Russian side is that Europe is making strides in, in attempting to diversify, firstly, where it gets its gas from, but also, you know, what kinds of energy are used. Certainly, we've seen the EU make relatively promising strides recently in trying to to uh, establish new, new agreements with Algeria and Qatar in terms of energy transfer. Um, but from the Russian side, there's still some belief that this may not happen soon enough in order to fully uh, immunize Europe, if you like, against the possibility of a kind of you know cessation in uh, Russian gas. So whether or not Russia is, is correct in the long term, um, in the short term, there's definitely belief from the Kremlin side that, say, that this kind of impact could be tanked, so to speak. Um, in the longer term, this would pose much more structural, much more existential problems for President Putin or indeed for whoever happens to succeed him within the coming decades. Um, and this is something that will require a very, very large reshuffle in how Russia pre uh, kind of approaches its own net zero policy, if indeed it plans to at all. Look at another aspect of the climate crisis. It's been suggested that global warming could actually work in the geographic favour of Russia insofar as lands which are currently permafrost, which are frozen, could thaw, could be, uh, could, could support agriculture, could support population. How realistic is that? Again, it's a very good question. Um, it's something which is understudied both from the Western point of view and also within Russia itself. Um, there, in a sense, such a, a development would decrease Russian reliance on um, food exports. So that would be a very positive thing in the short term. Um, but looking at the kind of wider Central Asian region, I mean, we, we've already you know, begun to see quite serious impacts of climate change in other, in, in, you know, in, in, in other Central Asian countries. And this has really had a very, very strong impact on how they produce food, on how they manage to sustain populations. And in no small part, it's also driven things like depopulation and quite radical resettlement of, um, of uh, populations. So I think it's something which we will come to assess more kind of as time moves on. Uh, in the short term, again, we've seen a lot of um, negative impact from climate change, thinking specifically of the major Siberian wildfires from 2021. Um, and any kind of short-term benefit that we might see is uh, questionable, to say the least, in the short term. <laughs> um, I mean, there's always hope, but it, it, it doesn't appear positive for now. 
We're recording this on Monday the 21st of February for publication on Wednesday the 23rd. I know this is an impossible question to ask, but how do you see the situation changing by then? Um, it is a difficult question, but it's the most important one. Uh, we are probably in the most fluid and most dangerous phase of the tensions yet um, for two reasons. Um, first of all, we have seen an inarguable increase in actual hostilities on the Russia-Ukraine border and indeed around the um, self-styled Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. Um, there has been an, an upsurge in conflict, specifically in terms of shelling. Um, it's not clear yet whether the um, Russian intention would be to initiate a more substantial military deployment in the Donbas, or whether it would try to commit to a much more uh, meaningful invasion of, of the wider Ukrainian territory. Um, really, at the moment, it's anyone's game, but it's certainly the most dangerous moment that we've seen so far. And there is a very, very real chance, especially watching Russian domestic messaging, that we could see a real conflict break out in the next 24 to 48 hours. Uh, it's important to, to remember at this stage that Russian domestic media is pushing the narrative very, very strongly that Ukraine is acting as an aggressor against the separatist territories in eastern Ukraine, and that such a move may be seen as, as, a, as a precursor to a more serious deployment of Russian forces, whether in the separatist region themselves or as an invasion into Ukrainian territory. Do you think a Biden-Putin summit will go ahead? It would be a very positive uh, development. At present, there are no concrete plans to do so, despite both sides uh, agreeing in theory, in principle, that such a, a summit can and should go ahead. Um, if, it did, if, if it were to go ahead, it would most likely delay hostilities in the worst case scenario, but, but also possibly lead to a more positive um, outcome in the event of some kind of diplomatic uh, accord being reached. It is very hard to see at this stage how an accord could be reached given that the past few weeks have seen uh, essentially a failure in, in uh, diplomacy. Uh, Russia has maintained steadfastly that it wishes to see several assurances that, that Ukraine will not join NATO. That's something which NATO and indeed most of the Western members have um, stated equally steadfastly that they cannot agree to. So at this stage, it's very, very concerning, um, and it's not clear how there can be a diplomatic um, resolution right now. Well, we can speculate, we can speculate endlessly, but I think the most productive thing we can do is simply to watch and hope. So thank you very much for your insights, Louis. That's uh, put a lot of things into context, and it's been very valuable. So thank you for joining the Sustainable Futures Report. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Louis Cox Brousseau of Sibylline. Who knows what the situation will be by the time this podcast goes live. We talk about a wide range of issues in the Sustainable Futures Report, not least about water, that resource vital to all life. I've come across a podcast called Water X Future. It's sponsored by Aquaporin, a water technology company based in Denmark, which specialises in natural water treatment. The next episode will be on the 2nd of March. It's about cathedral thinking, that's taking the ultra-long view. Past episodes include Water in Space, The Taste of Water, Wastewater, and The Tiny Proportion of Water That's Actually Drinkable. Find Water X Future in your preferred podcast app. And let me know what you think.
That's it for today's Wednesday interview. Next week, we'll talk to a man whose organisation is successfully limiting deforestation, a problem which is widespread across the developing world. On Friday, there'll be the usual roundup of sustainability news. And if you don't want to miss any episodes, you can sign up on the website at sustainablefutures.report. And if you become a patron, you generally get each episode at least a day earlier than everyone else. Details of that on the website as well. Sustainablefutures.report That was the Wednesday interview from the Sustainable Futures Report. I'm Anthony Day. Until next time. Thank you.